Well, by now, you all know that growing up, I was a sports fan, and I enjoy watching my sports and following sports, and one of the sports I followed was basketball. And my favorite basketball player was a guy you might have heard of. His name was Michael Jordan. <laughs> Michael Jordan, I loved watching him. He was universally known as a dominating basketball player. He won six championships with the Chicago Bulls, and I watched every one of them, enjoyed them, uh, loved watching him play. But one of the things that Michael Jordan is always going to be remembered for is not that he won all these championships or that he was a dominating player, but also that for his comebacks. He's known as a man who could not, for the life of him, stay retired. Okay, So in 1993, Michael Jordan retired from basketball to pursue a career in baseball. And after a couple years of flailing away in the minor leagues, not getting anywhere, he decided to go back to basketball, unretire, and after which he promptly won three more championships. And so he hadn't lost his edge. In 1999, he retired again. And at this point, he said he was 99.9% sure he was never coming back. And that 0.1% won out. <laughs> In 2001, he decided to come back again and played for a whole other two years. And he finally retired for good in 2003. But even since then, he's been constantly in rumors about that he might consider coming back yet again. Even this year in February, he said an article came out that said he was considering coming back at age 50, which would put him in the year 2013, 20 years after his first retirement. So this is it's getting ridiculous. <laughs> but... Uh, in the last few years, several other famous athletes have joined him in this indecisive, I guess you can call it an indecisive Hall of Fame. <laughs> Mario Lemieux, uh, Brett Favre, Roger Clemens, they just, they get these itches and they have to get back into the game. Or they feel like they have unfinished business to get to. And so they go back and join the sport again. Well, I bring up these famous as- athletes because I want to make a comparison to the way that God works. Now, God is not indecisive or uncommitted in anything he does. Okay, let's get that clear. He's not that. But we do believe that God has unfinished business here on earth. Okay, and we and God is not sitting up there waffling back and forth about whether he's going to come back to earth. We believe he is coming back. He is making a comeback. And we're going through a series lately on how God has revealed himself to mankind over the years. How the infinite God of the universe wants finite man, like you and me, to know him. And so he's revealed himself in many different ways and many different times to us here on earth. He's revealed himself through our consciences and through history, through creation, through God's word in the Bible. And then as we saw last week, he most fully and completely revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, who was God in the flesh here on earth. And even though Jesus is the climax of God's revelation, he's what everything was building up to, we cannot end there. We can't end there because God's revelation doesn't end there. See, we believe that God is done revealing himself. He's not done. He's unfinished. He has unfinished business here on earth. And he will continue to reveal himself further 
in the days ahead. Now, these days we claim to know a lot about God. And from a human perspective, you could say that we do. Through his revelation, the way he's revealed himself to us, we can know quite a bit about God. But we believe that God is infinite, that he's transcendent, that he's beyond our understanding. And so, um, even though God has at times pulled back the curtain a little bit, so to speak, that he's uh, revealed a little bit about himself to us, so we can get little glimpses of his glory, all that we know about God is still so small. All that we know about God is still so small. All that you've ever learned about God is just a sliver of who he is. Does that not blow your mind? How amazing our God is? Today we're going to be skipping around a lot in the Bible. We'll be in one specific book, but we're not going to be looking at one specific passage. Uh, If you will, turn with me to the last book in your Bible, the book of Revelation. Very appropriately named. Book of Revelation. If we did a whole series on God's revelation to man and didn't look at the book called Revelation, it'd be a pretty sad thing. Uh, But we're going to be looking at several different passages in this book. We'll be starting in chapter 1, though, so you can turn to Revelation chapter 1. And as you turn there, I want to ask for God's guidance as we look into his word. So let's pray. God, we do pray that you would reveal yourself to us today, that we would see you, that we would see you in your splendor and your glory and your power, and we would see you for who you really are. We pray that you would remove any blinders we have, help us to see you through your word, and that your Holy Spirit would be working on each one of our hearts. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this book of Revelation, I'll just give you a little bit of context. It was written by the Apostle John, the same one who wrote the book of John and 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. And he was written as an old man. He was exiled on an island, the Greek island of Patmos. And he was exiled for preaching the gospel. And as he was there, all alone, he was given this vision from God. God, Jesus showed up and gave him a vision from God about the end times about how God would return to earth. And even though this book has been very misunderstood at times, it's very confusing if you try to read through it in a, lot, in a very straightforward way. Some things are figurative, some things aren't, and so it can be confusing as we read it. But we know that it dramatically describes God's judgment on sin, his rewarding of the righteous, and his return to earth to set up his kingdom. We know that for sure. And then it ends by describing our eternal home in heaven. So let's begin reading at the very beginning, first several verses of the book. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, 
and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So what do we learn from these verses we just read? I summed it up this way, that God will soon be revealed and seen by everyone on earth. God's not done. He will soon be further revealed, and this time to everyone. God will soon be revealed and seen by everyone on earth. Did you see that? Speaking of Jesus, verse 7, John says, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. He is the God, who, Jesus is the God who, as verse 8 says, who is and who was and who is to come. He is to come. Remember how we saw last week that Jesus is the greatest form of revelation that God has ever given to man. He is. Well, this greatest revelation from God is coming back to earth. And the revelation, what will be revealed about God, will be even greater than before. Yes, Jesus was the greatest revelation God has ever given man of himself. However, have you ever thought of the fact that even Jesus was veiled to us? Even this greatest revelation was veiled to us. He came in skin and bones. He came in an unglorified body. Jesus had emptied himself. He humbled himself. He willingly restrained his divine power. And that's the best we have so far. Now, I'm not diminishing Jesus' revelation at all. I'm saying, how much greater is it going to be? When Jesus came to earth in the past, he was seen by some. He was seen by some people. But it was a limited number of people, of uh, mostly Jewish people in the first century, first 30 years of the first century. But did you see who will see him soon? Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Every eye, everyone. It says, even those who pierced him. That means that everyone, even the ones who crucified him in history, so everyone in history is going to see Jesus in the future. This passage says that it will happen soon. In verse 1 it says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. This doesn't mean John was wrong because he wrote this so long ago. We talked about this last week, but they didn't know when Jesus was coming back, so they said he would return soon. And what they meant by soon was that Jesus' return was imminent. It could happen at any moment. We don't know, and it could happen any time. And you know what? That's the way we need to live today, too. Because Jesus' return is still imminent. It could happen at any moment. And we need to live like we're expecting it. I find the truth here that, G, that God will soon be revealed and seen by everyone on earth. It's, it's very heartening. 
Because as we've gone through this series, and we've seen all these different ways that God keeps revealing himself to man, we've seen over and over again that so many people just don't see God behind the revelation that he's given. They, they look right at the revelation that God's given, and they don't see him behind it. Whether that be in their consciences or history or creation or at the Bible or even Jesus, they don't see God behind it, and it's tragic. I don't know about you, but I find it quite frustrating. So all, we see all these different ways that God's revealed himself, and people just don't see it. But then I read this passage, and I'm encouraged because that's all going to change. It says, every eye will see him. They'll see God. They'll see him for who he is. Turn with me to uh, Revelation 19, towards the end of the book. The first of several flips I'll have you do today. Revelation 19. Verse 11 says this. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's the God who's coming back. Every eye is going to see that. Jesus coming, he's faithful, he's true. He will return, and he'll reveal himself one more time. Now, something in this passage that I just read might have bothered you. And that's because in verse 15, it talks about the wrath of God. It says that when Jesus comes, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And you think, that might not, that might not sound like the Jesus you think you know. You think, I know Jesus as this peaceful and mild and meek and man on earth. This doesn't sound like the Jesus I know. But I think that really just shows us that we really need to get to know Jesus for who he is. We can't make up in our own minds who Jesus is. We have to see in his word, who is Jesus? What is he like? What does he do? Do you really know Jesus? Do you know what he's like? There are several clear ways that we'll see today that God will be revealed in the future. And the first one is this, that we'll see here. It says, he will be revealed as righteous in wrath and judgment. God will be revealed to us as righteous in the way he pours out wrath on earth and judges people. He'll be revealed as righteous in wrath and judgment. Like I said, verse 15, it talks about treading in the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. For those of you who are older here, you might remember a, a very famous TV scene from the show I Love Lucy, where Lucy finds herself in Italy, and she doesn't know the language, and she's lost, and she gets uh, thrown into this job of treading out these grapes in this vat. She gets mistaken as this grape stomper, basically. 
gets thrown in this vat of grapes with another lady, and they're walking around stomping grapes to make wine. And it's really a pretty funny scene. They end up uh, dancing around, and then they get in a fight, and they're rolling around in the grapes, and grapes are flying everywhere, and havoc ensues, and it's a really funny scene. But they don't end up doing a very good job with this job of treading out the grapes. And uh, when we read here that Jesus is going to return and tread the wine press of the wrath of God, it's compared to that. It's like he's in a vat of grapes, treading out the grapes to make wine. And the wine that's made represents the finished wrath of God. And it's not humorous or hilarious at all. It's really quite sobering when we read about the wrath of God. It's eye-opening. This theme of God's wrath comes out over and over again in this book. Huge sections of the book of Revelation describe God's judgment on earth. There's the seven seal judgments, which include the oft-mentioned four horsemen of the apocalypse. And they bring war and economic ruin, famine, plague, death. At the end of the seal judgments, it says this, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? It's a terrifying thing. This is the greatest people on earth doing this. And then there come the trumpet judgments. They include hail and fire, bloody waters, dying vegetation and dying animals. Poisoned waters, demonic oppression and agony, deadly smoke and sulfur. And then finally, there's the last seven plagues, known as the bold judgments. Turn with me to chapter 15. Just back a few pages, chapter 15. Verse 1, it says, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast in his image and over the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And then these last seven plagues are poured out on earth. They include more disease and pain and blood and death, demonic oppression, and then a worldwide earthquake. It says it's never, an earthquake like this has never been seen before. But what you see here in the verses I just read in chapter 15. Do you see how it ended? Verse 4. It says, All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. That's the word we've been studying. Revealed. Your righteous acts have been revealed. What is he talking about when he says that God's righteous acts are revealed? Well, he's talking about the judgments that God's pouring out on earth. This is what God talking about when your righteous acts are your judgments. And if they are righteous acts, 
They cannot be wrong. They cannot be misguided. God cannot do what is wrong. In order for our God to be righteous and our God to be holy and just, He must judge sin. So as we see all these different judgments and we question God and we complain, it says, how could you do stuff like this to people here on earth? It doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem just. It seems too harsh. We must remember this. That God cannot do wrong. His acts, all his acts, are righteous. He is completely perfect and holy and just in what he does. And we must remember that on the one hand, while he's full of all this righteous judgment and justice, he's also full of grace and mercy and love. That's how he can pardon any of us at all. Because we sure don't deserve it. We all deserve this. But he's both just and loving. And so he shows us grace. So what do we take away from this? I would give you this application. I'd say that God's righteous judgments are a good picture for us of how much God hates sin. They show us how much God hates sin. Because God doesn't just pour out his wrath on a world, on an innocent world full of innocent people. That's not the picture. It's quite the opposite. The picture we get over and over and over again in Revelation that God is pouring out his wrath on a world because of how sinful the world has become. They're completely prideful, unrepentant, antagonistic towards God. We see this. A judgment comes, and it says they did not repent. They kept in their ways. They mocked God. They cried out to God, and like it just they never, ever turned back to God. And we learn from the Bible that God has an intense and unending hatred towards sin. Because sin attempts to take glory from God that is rightfully his and his alone. And as we get to know God better and get to know who he is more fully, we should be growing in our own hatred of sin. And re- because we realize how wrong and how evil our acts are before a holy God. We all have them. We all have sins in our lives that we struggle with to differing degrees and different types. Whether we struggle with anger or lust or lying, greed, envy, laziness. What are you doing to fight the sin in your life? What are you doing? Have you ingrained in your mind that God hates the sin in your life? He doesn't hate you. Don't get that picture at all. God does not hate you. He loves you. That's why he sent his son to die for you. But he hates your sin. And God is going to pour out his wrath and fury on the sins of the world. Next time you're tempted to sin, I want you to think about how much God hates the sin. Next time you're tempted to watch something or look at something that you shouldn't, preach to yourself. 
say, God hates the sin of lust with a passion. And then you pray, help me to hate it as well. Because if we learn to hate our sins, we'll be more ruthless with them. We'll work harder at destroying them in our lives. Next time you're tempted to even eat too much, we know that gluttony is a sin. Next time you're tempted to tell yourself that God hates the sin of gluttony. Next time you're tempted to spend too much, tell yourself that God hates the sin of greed and envy. How's your hatred level for the sins in your life? God will be revealed as righteous in his judgments, holy in his judgments. But that's not nearly all we'll see here in this book. The second thing I want you to see in this passage is a bit more upbeat. And that's that God will soon be revealed and seen by everyone on earth, and he will be revealed as worthy of all worship. God will be revealed as being worthy of all praise and honor and glory. He'll be revealed as worthy of all worship. In the midst of all these scenes of judgment and revelation, another recurring theme is the worship of God in heaven. It's something that we don't often connect. We don't often see judgment and then praise, judgment and then praise, judgment and praise. It keeps happening. We read one of the passages earlier in the service about the four living creatures crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. I want to take you to the passage right after that. Revelation chapter 5. Turn with me to Revelation 5. In this scene, it's just been determined that only Jesus is worthy to open the scrolls to begin God's judgments on earth. No one else in heaven was worthy but Jesus. And then this follows, Revelation 5, verse 14. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. You see how Jesus will be revealed as worthy of all worship in verse 12? It says, in a loud voice is saying, worthy is the Lamb, what? Who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We worship a lot of things in our lives today. We worship all kinds of things. We love them. We pour our lives into them, all while ignoring God. We might worship our jobs or our spouses or our children or our friends or we worship our possessions, our money, our houses, our cars, our sports stars, movie stars, rock stars. And all of these things are not worthy to be worshipped. Some of them are good things. Some of them aren't. But they are not worthy to be worshipped. 
with our lives. Only God deserves to be loved and glorified by our entire lives. And I think that we easily fall into this trap of worshiping other things because we, our eyes have not seen the one who is truly worship, truly worthy of all worship. We haven't seen that. But one day, Jesus will be revealed to our eyes. We'll see him for who he is. And we will see just how misplaced our worship of all the others, all the other relatively worthless things are. Me asking, what are you worshiping with your life right now? What are you pouring your life into? If something in your life has displaced Jesus in terms of importance or priority or praise, then you are worshiping something else with your life. It's time to recenter our hearts and our affections on the one who is worthy of receiving all the honor and all the glory and all the praise. There's so many ways that God's going to be revealed, further revealed in the future to, to us. I've got one more for today that comes out in this book, and that is that God will be revealed as reigning in great power. God will be revealed and seen by everyone on earth as the king who reigns. God will be revealed as reigning in great power. This is another constantly repeated theme in this book, that God already reigns in heaven and that he is returning to earth to reign here as well. In chapter 4, what we read earlier, in verse 2 it says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. There was someone sitting on the throne. You get that? There's someone sitting on the throne in heaven. Christ is already on the throne, ruling the universe in power. Turn with me to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 16. Another worship scene in heaven. It says, And the twenty-four elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was. Why? Because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. It's begun to reign. I sometimes think of Jesus returning to reign, and I think of how surprised some people are going to be by that. Some people are going to be very surprised. If you've ever seen the girly romantic movie of Ever After... Uh, this is a uh, remake of Cinderella, basically. Um, guys, you end up having to watch movies like this once you have a wife, so you can you can write that down. <laughs> anyway, at the end of the movie, after the prince falls for this Cinderella character, Danielle, and he marries her, brings her into the palace, he brings Danielle's evil stepmother and stepsisters into the palace, and which time he reveals to them his bride. And they recognize her, and he's, she's become this beautiful princess. And the stepmother and sisters are shocked, silly, to see Danielle as a princess. They look at her and be like, wait a second, wait. 
That's, this isn't right. This can't be happening. You can't be a princess. You're not a princess. How did this happen? They're just shocked. And then they end up blaming each other and turning on each other and are completely humiliated in front of all the royalty. But one day, the world is going to be shocked. The world's going to be shocked to see Jesus, who they've spent centuries mocking, coming back to reign in power. Wait, 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 wait. You can't be the king. You're on the throne? This can't be happening. Remember how one of the passages we read earlier ended in Revelation 19. It says, On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. It'll be a glorious day for some and a terrifying day for others. When God is revealed to all as reigning in his great power for all eternity. Well, as this series comes to an end, you might be thinking that, okay, God has revealed himself in all these different ways, and he will be revealed in the future in all these different ways, so that we can get to know him more. But how is it, how is it that finite, a finite person like myself can actually come to know this infinite God of the universe. And I would answer, first of all, that this is one of the most amazing things about this at all. This is, a, this is an amazing thing that the infinite God wants humans to know him at all, and that he actually provides ways that we can know him. That's incredible. It's stunning. But also, I think that this is what makes the last thing I want to point out so great. See, the fact that God is infinite, and he's transcendent, he's beyond us, and we will never be infinite and transcendent, means that we have a privilege. We have a, what you might call a project or a mission, an assignment that we get to carry out for all eternity. The final thing I want you to see here is that God's people will continually and eternally get to know him better. How great is that? We have the immense privilege to continue to grow deeper in knowing God. And for eternity, God's people will continually get to know him better. Turn with me to Revelation 21. Towards the end of the book, Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. There could be no greater mission for us for eternity 
than to continually know God more. There couldn't be. And that's what we get to do. More and more of God will be revealed to us as we live with him. Did you see that? It said, verse 3, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. God's going to live with us. We'll live with him. We'll get to know him better. He'll be continually pulling back the curtain, letting us see more of his glory. Have you ever thought of that being part of the experience of heaven? Sometimes in our ignorance, we think that heaven's going to be boring because it goes on forever and ever and ever. But trust me, there is an infinite, you know what infinite means? Infinite God that we keep to get knowing and loving more and more and more. Constantly and continually going deeper into knowing God. That won't be boring. That's going to be glorious. It will be an exhilarating journey into the infinite. Revelation 22.4 says that we will see his face. You think you know God now? Have you seen him before? You will. We'll get to see him with our own eyes, gaze upon his infinite beauty. We'll be seeing more of God's love, more of his grace, more of his righteousness, more of his majesty, more of his holiness. And it will drive our worship. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And as verse 6 says here in 21, it says that we'll get to drink from the spring of the water of life. Speaking of which, do you notice in this passage how we earn a spot in this amazing place? How do we get there? It's pretty clear we can't earn it. Right? What does verse 6 say? It says, To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He's going to give it to us without cost, freely. Now the next verse says, He who overcomes will inherit all of this. And I will be as God and he will be my son. So it's like, how is it free, without cost, yet we have to overcome something? How does that work? What do we have to overcome? Well, back in Revelation 12, it talks about the saints who have overcome Satan and the trials that came on earth. And listen to how it says they overcame. It says, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. And the word of their testimony. How we get a spot in heaven, how we overcome Satan, how we overcome death, and how we overcome all these trials that are thrown at us is by the blood of the Lamb and giving testimony of our faith in Him. We can only be saved and brought to heaven by the blood of Jesus, and it's free. Have you put your faith in this blood of Jesus to save you? See, Jesus, who we talked about today as this powerful and reigning and amazing king, once humbled himself, came to earth, where he was tried and beaten and killed, though he had done nothing wrong. 
Our sins were the ones who deserved death. And yet he took them on his back. He died our death for us. In order to give us a way that our sins can be forgiven. In order to give us a way that we can overcome all that is against us. In order to give us the chance that we can drink freely from the spring of life. And God promises here, He who overcomes by the blood of the Lamb, He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be His God, and He will be my Son. Is God your God today? Have you become His son or daughter by His blood? I love nothing more than to talk you through this decision that you must make. Because if you do not accept this free grace, I can only promise you one thing. And that's the one day you'll have to face this terrifying wrath. If you don't believe me, read the very next verse in Revelation 21, verse 8. But if we'll only put our faith in Jesus' blood for salvation, we will share in the glories of heaven. And what incredible glories they'll be. I've got one final flip of the pages for you. It may even be on the same page. Revelation 22, final chapter in the Bible. Revelation 22 Verse 1 says this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. I want you to notice something here. There's still a number of verses here in chapter 2 which, in which John wraps up the book. But these five verses at the beginning of chapter 22 are the end of his description of heaven and eternity. Okay? And we think, when we think of the book of Revelation, we think that it describes the end of God's story. But it doesn't. Did you notice an ending? I didn't. It's open-ended. Verse 5. At the end of verse 5. And they will reign forever and ever. It's open-ended. It's kind of like a they lived happily ever after. At the end of a fairy tale. But you know what this tells me? That there is so much more to be revealed. Isn't that incredible? There's so much more to be revealed. Much, there's much to be revealed about us and our future. There's much to be revealed about heaven and our eternal home. But much more importantly, there's so much more to be revealed about our great and awesome God who is righteous in judgment, worthy of our worship, and reigning in great power. I'm looking forward to the journey of continually knowing him more. Because he is the God who reveals himself.
Let's pray. Lord, we know so little about you. We thank you for what we do know, what you have revealed to us, that we can know you in some small way, that we can learn to love you, learn to worship you for who you are and what you've done. We thank you for sending Jesus to die for us. We pray that if anyone here has not made that decision, that they will do so today to put their faith in your blood because you took the wrath of God in their place, if they'll only accept. Pray that we'll be able to sing today as we end it. No matter what we're going through, looking to the future, it will be well with us because of you. Pray this in your name. Amen.